Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? Beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. My guest this week is the great Brian Eno. Brian's new album is Film Music 1976 to 2020, title of which seems self-explanatory. I've been a huge fan of Brian Eno's music for years. It's great to welcome him to the Kermode on Film podcast. So it's a pleasure to welcome uh, the great Brian Eno to uh, MK3D. Brian, I have to start by, I know this sounds like a roundabout way of getting into this, I have a PhD and I'm kind of, I have to say thank you to you for it because when I started writing my thesis, somebody gave me a copy of Plateau of Mirror uh, and I couldn't ever work listening to music that had words or distracting And I wrote my entire thesis to the sound of Plateau of Mirror, which I had on an LP, which I just played over and over and over again. And now... Whenever I think of doing that, it's the sound of of, uh, of your ambient uh, uh, albums that that come back to me. So thank you very much for enabling me to get through a very very difficult three years. Uh, that's a nice story. Thank you. Now um, you now have this uh, album, which is basically a collection of uh, of music that you've done for soundtracks. It is enticingly entitled "Film Music 1976 to 2020," which is very specific and. Uh, well, not perhaps as creative as Plateau of Mirror. Um, it's, uh, it's a really interesting collection of, uh, of music, all of which has been related to films and television programs, but not in the way that you would think usually of, uh, of, of a, a collection of film compositions. Tell us essentially what we have on this album, on this collection. So... First of all, it was quite a hard record to put together because there's such a lot of material to choose from. So it became a question of not trying to make a completely comprehensive set of things. So there are several films I've worked on that aren't featured on this record, but just trying to make a, a decent sounding record, yeah. <laughs> something, something that held together as a record. So the work covers um, nearly 50 years, actually. And it starts out really in the 70s because that was when I started to discover that the recording studio was really a place where you could paint with sound. And I've ever since then, I've always thought of myself as someone who, who's a painter who decided to work in sound instead of paint. Um, and with, with contemporary recording, that is indeed very much how you work yeah you know, contemporary recording is much more like making a painting than like performing a piece of music um in the sense that sorry i don't know how i can stop those little noises. <laughs> <laughs> 
this is probably people sending me emails and things like this. Um, Brian, can I just say, I'm thrilled that somebody of your um, advanced knowledge of electronic music doesn't know how to turn off the email alarm. That, 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 that gives me hope for the future. <laughs> There's quite a few things like that. I don't know how to... <laughs> it's, it's sort of a niche mind, you know. I'm very good at, very good at a very small area. Of a lot of it I just don't understand at all. Um, anyway, back to that story. So, yes. so it, it really started out with people saying to me, could I use a piece of your music, an existing mm -hmm. piece in a film, you know? And then me noticing two things. First of all, I was listening to a lot of film soundtracks myself. I, I really enjoyed listening to them as music. Um, and thinking there was something that that music had, which was common to the kind of music I was starting to make. And in the sense that it was, it was impressionistic music, you know, the, the difference between sort of impressionist painters and painters earlier than that was that in impressionism, you didn't have a strong central subject. You had an all over feeling in the canvas, an atmosphere, and sometimes almost no subject at all. You know, if you think of the water lilies, for example, there's, it's, it's a field of color really. Yeah. And I had started to find I was making music that was more like that. But then I noticed that film soundtracks were often like that in the sense that their subject was already given. The film was the subject. And so the music was the atmosphere that surrounded that or supported it. Um, so it, it felt very familiar to me, the, the idea of making film soundtracks. And it all started really in an active way when I'd be working on songs or something in the studio in the early 70s, this was. And at the end of the day, I would say to my friend, Rhett Davis, who was the engineer, okay, now let's do the film mix. And this was our code for take out half of the ingredients or even nearly all of the ingredients and see what we can do with these few incidental sounds that are left. Yeah. Um, and that really became a liberation for me and a, a new way of working. On the album, we have represented, you know, work that's turned up in the films of, of Michael Mann, of, of Danny Boyle, of Antonioni. Tell me about working with Derek Jarman, because this is kind of the beginning of so much. I mean, interesting that Jarman, of course, was a painter. Yeah. Interesting that you and Jarman share that, uh, that as a kind of central reference point. So tell me about working with Jarman. Um, I knew Jarman, uh, Derek, I should say. <laughs> I knew Derek socially. Um, he was part of a sort of scene that was very active at that time, which included um, Andrew Logan and um, Zandra Rhodes, Carol McNichol. And it was a whole scene of people who were looking at um, different art forms with it in a new way. Um, and they were sort of not high art forms very often. So they were people thinking about fashion or ceramics or, or pop music or performance, if you like, in, in new ways. Um, and they had 
they had a lot of a lot to talk about across these art forms. That was very much a characteristic of the sixties and seventies that artists started talking to each other yeah. um, in ways that I think they hadn't done very much before then. And Derek <clears throat> got in touch. I mean, I knew him casually, you know, and he got in touch with me um, and said, I'm doing this film about St. Sebastian. Um, do you think you would like to do some music for it? And he described the film to me. And usually that is the place where I, I like to start from, from a description, words only. Yeah. I, I don't really want to see film early on. And I don't even want to read a script at the beginning. I just, I just want to know what, what the setting is, what the emotional setting of the thing is. So he described it to me and I just started working on it straight away. Um, as soon as I put the phone down, actually. <laughs> I, I quite often do that, because quite often when somebody's describing something, I start to get a a kind of sound picture of it. And so as soon as I put the phone down, I'm, I get to work. And on some occasions, I've finished a whole soundtrack without ever seeing a script. Wow. So, so my deal normally with directors not always, but normally I say, look, I'm just going to make a lot of music and you can do what you like with it. Um, so then I, I deliver lots and lots of pieces. Some of them are quite are far too long. Some of them are very short. Um, and then what happens is that directors will come back to me and in the ideal circumstance, they'll say, thanks, that's wonderful. <laughs> um, but more often what happens is, yes, we really like this piece, but it needs to be 40 seconds longer. Yeah. Um, we, we'd love to take this piece apart so we can use some of the threads from it in other parts of the film, that sort of thing. So that's all fine. I like doing that. It's very rare that I actually score to picture. And I think that's partly because most of the soundtracks that I like are not intimately bolted to the picture like that kind of soundtrack music they, they seem to run fairly freely as a sort of separate channel of information if you like beside the film particularly thinking of people like nino rota who mm -hmm. seems to have written the pieces and they just get laid on top of the film It's interesting, I do a soundtracks program on, uh, on Scala Radio and one of the issues that often comes up is that music uh, written specifically for film can be brilliant with the film. The question is, does it, does it stand on its own? Mm. Playing your album, um, I could quite happily play Plateau of Mirror and then play, your, uh, play the new album straight afterwards because it is completely listenable away from the material. Yeah. I was interested about you saying that you write from impressions and from script. Um, one of my favourite soundtrack albums has always been the Tangerine Dream soundtrack for Sorcerer, of course, of which they never saw a single frame of it. Uh -huh. Freakin' told them the story and sent them the script, and then he was, you know, out shooting six months later, and they just sent him a load of recording. Mm -hmm. And that was where that came from. And it does seem to me that that 
I mean, I hesitate to use the word ambient, but there is a very great similarity between ambient music and, and film music because, you know, because of it's, a, it's not necessarily linear or narrative. It is much more to do with, with mood and mood enhancement. Right. But I was interested looking at the, at the notes uh, for, for, for the new album about what happens when a piece of music is written for one film and turns up somewhere else. There are a couple of examples of it here. Let's look specifically at, well, tell us about, tell us about your collaborations with Antonioni because that is particularly interesting in, in this respect. Well, I, I never met Antonioni. I never even spoke to him. You never spoke to him? No. So this, this, was, this was a very remote collaboration. Um, I, I don't know, I did that music with um, the members of U2. Yeah. And I don't know whether any of us ever spoke to him. How was the communication done? I think it was all post hoc, post the music, I think. You know, we made, we made this piece of music. Shall I tell you what I think is the story? But I really don't know whether this is true now. Um, Ryan, one of the things I love more than anything is things that people think are true but might not be. So yes, please, go ahead. Uh, this is a good example of that genre. So um, when we decided to do that album together, which was a U2 plus me album, um, so we didn't call it U2, we gave it a new name, Passengers. And the sort of conceit that I came up with was, why don't we make a, an album of... Um, hypothetical soundtracks so actually soundtracks for films that never existed or haven't yeah. been made and and it was great I had such fun writing all the the <laughs> cover notes about the films um, it's such a I mean I know you're a film critic but it's such it's so easy to mimic bad film criticism I know I know <laughs> so so I enjoyed doing that um, my brother is also brilliant at that um, he's written a lot of great film reviews for films that never existed. But um, so I think what happened is we wrote a story about a hypothetical Antonioni film. Then I think we got an inquiry from Antonioni saying, could we have a piece of music for his new film? And this was what got sent to him. Uh, so it was it was made in the <laughs> it's rather peculiar you know it's, it's sort of the reverse way around um, it was made on the conceit that it was for an antonioni film but then it turned out to be true <laughs> so, so i think that's the story <laughs> The, the two levels that I love that, not only do I love the idea of writing music for a film that doesn't exist, that ends up in a film that does exist, but I also love the fact that you're not sure whether any of that is true at the same time. And in a way, that is, that is the kind of the perfect example of the, of the alchemy of it. So, I mean, the, another example is we have a piece of music that's very famously used in train spotting during oh, yeah. the sequence that everybody remembers of Ewan McGregor climbing down the toilet in the filthiest pub imaginable. And I remember Danny Boyle saying that the reason that sequence then turns into this glorious underwater is he thought you can only push the audience so far down the loo and after that you have to give them something spiritual. 
Yeah. But the piece of music that we hear is your music. But where does that actually originally come from? So, yeah, that's, that's a very interesting story. And I do know the whole story in this case. Um, so I was asked in the early 80s to, to do the music for a film that was coming up called For All Mankind, which was a compilation of all the footage from taken from all the footage that accompanied the early Apollo missions. And there were six million feet of film. And the only person in the world who'd seen all of that was this Texan guy called Al Reinert, very, very sweet man who'd spent two years sitting at NASA going through all this footage. And he'd, he'd selected bits and um, was going to make a sort of hypothetical um, mission where he used bits from many different missions actually to make one story. And he asked me if I would make the music for this. And I was quite interested initially and I asked him a little bit about the missions. And one of the things that came out that was very interesting was that each astronaut was allowed one cassette of, of their own music because there's quite a lot of downtime in space. You know, there's lots of time you're just sitting there looking yeah. at blackness. Um, so, you know, they said you can take one cassette with you. And nearly every astronaut took a cassette of country music. And <laughs> I thought this was such an interest. This is really what grabbed me about the whole project, to think of trying to marry space yeah. music, if you like, with country music. So I worked on that with my brother, Roger, and my friend, Dan Lanoir. Dan is a great um, uh, steel guitar player. My brother knows so much country music that it's not true. Um, and so we made this sort of new melange of music. And that particular piece uh, called Deep Blue Day came from, again, we didn't see much film. He did, he did send us a few little clips. Yeah. And he sent us some beautiful high-res pictures, um, which we used to stick up around the studio. But mostly we were working again from description, really, and from a sense of what must that have been like to be sitting in this Campbell's soup can 200,000 miles from the Earth um, with, with vacuum outside, you know, um, listening to country songs. <laughs> <laughs> It's interesting because there is a frontier sense to it because as far as I understand, you know, we hear that as, the, as they're going, it's, as they're, going on to, on, on the, they're flying over the underside surface of the moon. That's right. And, and, you know, if you're talking about country music, I mean, country music is cowboy music. It's frontier music, isn't it? So there is, there is something there that makes sense in that. Yes, absolutely. And I think that was, that was why it was actually quite easy to make that music because you had this sort of, you had space, of course, which the palette of instruments I use particularly suited, but you had this aspirational feeling of, wow, <laughs> you know, it was very much to do with the eyes opening wide to this amazing new frontier. Um, so anyway, we made that particular piece, which, as you say, accompanied this amazing moment in the film where you're going under the moon. So the moon, a huge planet is above you 
and you're going under it. So if you think about that, that means your craft is upside down in relation to the surface, which I think is such a strange thought anyway. So you're looking up at the moon as you pass under it. And this piece of music was so grand. And when I then heard that Danny Boyle wanted to use it for, for train spotter, uh, train spotting, I, I didn't really know what scene it was going to be in, but it was such a surprise when I saw it. Oh, he didn't tell you? He didn't say it's for the bit when Ewan McGregor goes down the bog? No. <laughs> I mean, it was a brilliant piece of imagination on his part. I, I would never have guessed that would work. Eagle, Houston, we, Houston, we see you on a terrible over. Roger, Eagle, done, Doc. Roger, how does it look? Eagle has wings. Roger. You know, it's, it's interesting in terms of the music that was taken out into space because um, I think it was Neil Armstrong famously took out a, a piece of music, of, of theremin music, because there was that kind of lunar concerto that was done on the theremin. And obviously, we all think of the theremin as the sound of science fiction and the sound of the future. Mm -hmm. But it is true that the country thing, it's like the human touch, but it is the... It's the new it's the new frontier and it kind of makes sense yeah. in that right stuff sense that that's what you go for mm -hmm. yeah no I, th I thought it summed up the I mean since then I've met several maybe nine or ten of the astronauts from the Apollo missions one of them is quite a good friend um, and they they are kind of you know you have to remember that they were basically test pilots yeah test pilots who took on this really big test um but they've they're very much texan cowboys most of them they're, they're nearly all republicans as far as i can tell and i got into serious trouble with them recently by suggesting that trump might not be the most godlike person on earth <laughs> at a conference controversial opinion brian uh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. i am i am definitely of the opinion that if there is a god he sent Trump down to test his supporters, and I think they failed. <laughs> Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Another um, really, really interesting use of your music is by Michael Mann in Heat. Mm -hmm. And so much of Heat is like a tone poem anyway. I mean, it is, obviously, it's a, it's a cat and mouse, you know, 
Cott and, uh, and, and Crook story, but it's basically a story about two people basically being the same person. Yeah. Tell us about how you provided Michael Mann with the music for that he used uh, in, in Heat. I wish I could tell you a very interesting story about this, but this was another one of those cases where it was a little bit like with Derek Jarman, actually. Michael Mann got in touch and said, there's this film, uh, it's about this. Have you got anything you think would work with this? And um, all of those pieces were pre-existed. They were not made for the film. Well, that's not quite true. One of them, I changed it a bit to make it more suitable for the film. So there's no interesting story. And I, I only ever talked to Michael on the phone once. A very nice man. He's sent me a Christmas card every year since. <laughs> <laughs> Which may mean that he's planning to ask me again one day to make something else. But what did he tell you? I mean, when he said, you said, I mean, because if you describe the plot of Heat, I mean, it's, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a television version of Heat before Heat. There's LA Takedown. It's a, you know, 90 minute version of the plot. Yes. The plot isn't much. No. It's, you know, these two people are playing cat and mouse because they are two sides of the same coin. And at some point they meet in a coffee shop and have a conversation about how that is the thing. But that's not the film. The no. film is to do with the, with the tone. So how did he describe the tone? Even when he was saying to you, have you got anything that matches this? Well, I can't remember the conversation exactly because it was a long time ago. But the kinds of questions I would ask are, what's the colour like in the film? Mm -hmm. is, it, is it high contrast or is it, um, is it very well lit? Is there a lot of darkness? Is, is there a lot of um, detail missing because of the darkness? That kind of thing interests me. And that, that is where I sort of find the atmosphere of the film somewhere. So obviously I want to know, you know, I want to know that it's about criminals versus it being about somebody going on a Christmas holiday or something. Yeah. Um, so I, I want to know the, the context of it, if you like, um, where it happens. But what happens precisely isn't that interesting from a, from a music-making point of view. Um, whether somebody gets murdered or not, for example, doesn't make that much difference in some ways. What does make a difference is knowing that it's in a city, what kind of city? Is it an American city or is it a European city? Is it a Russian city? You know, that all makes a difference, I think. Does it mostly happen in the daytime or at night? Um, is it tense? Is it suspenseful? Are there, are there feelings, conflicted feelings? You know, are there, are there characters in it who are straightforwardly good or straightforwardly bad, hopefully not, <laughs> or are they more complex yeah. than that? So, you know, how much, how much does the music also undermine the mood that it's making? It's, it's, I guess what I don't like about a lot of soundtracks is they so crudely um, reinforce what the, what the um, film is already offering, you know, so there's a little bit where the, the hero suddenly gets reflective about his childhood and out comes the tinkly high piano with the mm -hmm. lonely violin, you know, and you think, I don't need to be told that I should find this sad. So I, I always want to know what the dominant mood is, but what the subdominant mood might be as well.
I find that fascinating because I've spoken to directors who've quoted, I can't remember which director it was that said it, said that, you know, music in film is a brutal tool. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember talking to Bill Forsyth once about Local Hero, and I was doing an interview with him and Mark Knopfler, and I told him how much I loved the soundtrack. And Bill Forsyth said, you know, of course, it, all, it always hurts when people say that because in an ideal world, I would make a film that didn't need a soundtrack. But yeah. I feel like the soundtrack came in and did the, did the heavy lifting when I had failed to do it. Yeah, yeah. And I was saying, no, you know, it's, that's not how... But I understand filmmakers, you know, uh, thinking that the film sh- should stand on its own. But one of the things that's interesting about your music... And I, you know, I listen to a lot of film music. Um, one of the things that's interesting about your film is it, it isn't ever doing heavy lifting. That phrase that you just used, the subdominant, it is, it is an ambience. And I, I know I keep coming back to this, but it is creating an ambience rather than creating a narrative. It's as if the narrative of the film is happening there. And you do get music in which it will tell the narrative for you. So that if you turned away from the screen, you could tell what's happening because of that. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah. not doing that. What you're doing is creating a mood underneath and that is true of the whole album mm-hmm. there is almost nowhere on the album where i can think I, I can immediately picture this exact act is happening on screen at the same time yeah and that is kind of the key to what you're doing isn't it yeah i think so um i i don't i don't make figurative music basically i i think of a lot of film music as figurative in the sense that you can as you say track the action um, I'm not doing that. I'm more interested in sort of setting in motion a thought about what might be in the minds of the protagonists, what what complex mix of emotions they might be feeling. Because I, th- I think what normally happens in both in film and in literature, or what often happens, is that we simplify people hugely for the sake of the story. So they become good people or bad people or sad people or happy people, whereas what normally happens in real life is that people are actually very complicated and they have lots of different things going on at the same time. Yeah. So I, I always think it's nice if you can introduce some of that ambiguity into a film with the music, but back to your earlier point, I, I really sympathize with directors being cautious about music. I, I feel the same way. Actually, I, I feel more and more, awkward about music being used in documentaries, particularly if they're political or polemical in some way or another. Um, you know, one of my favorite documentary makers is Adam Curtis, and he's used a lot of my music, but I, I get more and more nervous about trying to condition the audience's reaction to something by music in that kind of context. Um, you know, where whenever Donald Rumsfeld occurs, there's the sort of low cellos and the, <laughs> you know, the the sense of threat and so on. I I sort of think it's um, propagandistic in a way, and that worries me a little bit. And similarly with films, I don't I don't want to be making propaganda. I don't want to be just turning up the dials on the moods there that are already there. So, so I think I'm, I'm often sort of trying to undermine in some ways rather than underline. That's a good smart. Very good. Undermine rather than underline. <laughs> That's very good. <laughs> Tell me about working with Peter Jackson on Lovely Bones. So 
Peter and his wife, who, who was very, very much part of making the film as well, lived in, live in New Zealand. So the relationship was completely by phone and email with this huge time gap in between. Um, and I suppose that was one of the most traditional ways of working that I've used with film music in that he had specific scenes. He had quite a lot of material to work from. Um, and I knew, I knew the book already. I'd read the book. Yeah. Um, and I really liked the book. So, and Brian, it is a classically unfilmable book. I mean, famously, Lynn Ramsey worked for four years before Peter Jackson trying to get, because it is not a book that says this is a film. No, no, it's a, it's a very difficult book, I would say, to film. In fact, I, I suppose one of the reasons I was interested in it is because I had read the book and then I heard he was making a film. I thought, how, how are you going to do that? So I was quite curious to see how it would work. But I also was very aware that because of the the almost non-narrative version of, of much of the book, um, that music would really have a place, could really have a place in this. Um, there wasn't really a lot of activity to, um, to be supporting. So what you were really trying to do was to build this weird world that um, this film inhabits. So it struck me as a, as a great project. Uh, it was quite a difficult one, I have to say. I, again, I worked with two friends. This was with Leo Abrahams and John Hopkins. And we spent quite a long time in my studio just making pieces and thinking, no, that doesn't quite make it. And it took us quite a while to get the pulse of that film, I think. Um, and we kept sending things to Peter and he kept getting back and saying, yeah, that's pretty good. Um, not quite there yet. <laughs> um, so he was, he was quite, he was very involved in the development of the music actually. And I should ask you, perhaps impolitely, um, do you think in the end the film worked? I, because I still hold, I mean, I'm a huge Peter Jackson fan. I still hold that Lovely Bones is an unfilmable film. It may be a film that you can do a score for, but I actually don't think it's filmable. Yeah, I mean, I had mixed feelings about the final result. Though I have to say, I nearly always have mixed feelings about everything I'm involved in. <laughs> so um, it's, it's very rarely that I finish something and think, well, that was an absolute triumph. I'm so pleased with that. It has happened now and again, but normally I, I come out of something thinking, well, next time I can probably approach that a bit better. Um, has, has your music ever been used in something that afterwards you've thought, you know, I, I kind of wish it wasn't in there? You don't have to name names, but has it happened? It has happened. Um, and in fact, I don't mind naming it. It was a, <laughs> it was a film I'm... The, actually, the first proper film I worked on was, was a film called The Devil's Men, which was a really terrible horror film, or a horrible terror film. <laughs> it was 
um, it was really such a bad film. Um, but it was the first time I'd done a film soundtrack. Um, and it was very old school. Everything about it was old school. Donald Pleasance was in the film, actually. Um, looking like he always does. <laughs> um, so I wasn't, I wasn't too keen on that, but I wasn't too bothered about it either because it was the first one I'd done and I wanted to know how the whole process worked. Come with us, if you dare, on a terrifying journey through cells of madness, haunts of horror and fear. Come with us to this forsaken monument of crumbling stones which echoes the desolate cries of the damned. Descend with us to the forbidden chambers of the ancient pagan gods of wrath, where the devil's men perform the secret rites of the land of the Minotaur. I, uh, I've written a number of documentaries over the years, and I once wrote a, a script for a documentary. And when it was reviewed in the newspaper, it said, the most shocking thing about this documentary is that the script is written by Mark Kermode. Did he not have anything better to do? And I thought, actually, no, I didn't. I really enjoyed writing it. It was a, it was a fun thing. And it was, you know, I wanted to see whether I could do it. And I, and I could, and I'm very, very happy with it. So I, you know, you take your failures, you take your successes together. Tell us about um, Bacon, because obviously that is a kind of interesting, because you started off by saying that you came at this through painting. So yeah. tell us about your music and the paintings of, uh, of Bacon. So I've always had a funny relationship with the work of Francis Bacon in that I can see that it's brilliant, but I don't like it that much. Now, funnily enough, I had the same sort of relationship with the music of Frank Zappa. Um, I, I always. I am so with you. I am so with you on Frank Zappa. Yes, yeah. of course. I just don't want to hear it. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. And I always say to people that I'm incredibly grateful to Frank Zappa because he, he, by doing the thing he did so well, he made it clear to me that I didn't ever want to do it. It, it sort of finished an area of music for me and I'm, yeah. I'm honestly grateful to him for having done it yeah. because I now know I, that's not what I want to do. And he also, he pushed Beefheart into, into areas that he wouldn't have gone into had it not been for working with Frank Zappa. So thank you, Frank. Yes. Just don't want to hear the records. That's, that's sort of how it is. Yeah. You know, and, and in science, everybody values people who make experiments that fail as yeah. well. <laughs> that's part of the job. You know, you, you want to know not only what works, but what didn't work. Yeah. And, and in art, for you, you want to know for you what worked and what didn't work. Um, and it isn't, it isn't a condemnation of the person to no. say, that, that doesn't work for me. It's a, it's a way of saying thank you. Now I understand a little bit better what, what it is I want and love. Um, but the, uh, the Francis Bacon, so I came into that with this sort of complex mix of feelings because when I was at art school, Bacon was very much an idol. Um, people really, really were crazy about him and obsessed with his work. Um, and I wasn't. I, th I thought that it was so... Um, psychological in the sense of it depended so much on some sort of psychological premise that I didn't really like. I was much more of a formalist. I, I wanted to, at that time, I, I wanted um, things that were um, not so 
visceral, not yeah. so fleshy. Yeah. But but as I said, I knew a little bit about Bacon um, as a person as well. Um, one of my tutors was quite a close friend of his. So I, I knew a little bit about the man and I knew that he'd had a very complex and sort of sort of shocking life in a way, including from his childhood onwards, uh, which presumably manifests in those pictures. Um, and I got, this was another case where I got the call um, and on the call, I started thinking, yeah, I, I know this world. I just feel I know where this should be. And I just started working with a new synthesizer, a very weird and complex synthesizer that nobody knows how to program called Absinthe. It's, it's, it's one Absinthe? Absinthe, A-B-S-Y-N-T-H. It's, it's a great, great instrument, but very hard to, it has a terrible interface and it's, it's very complex. So it's sort of, but it has a random button in it. This is the important thing. You can randomize. So, so you can just like the drink. It has a random button. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly what it's like. Um, and I had been playing with this and getting some really interesting results. And then this phone call came about this film. And I thought, this is how I can center my experiments with absinthe. I'll just, I'll just start working and, but you know, I'll be working with it, but I'll be thinking about this film. And in fact, I made the whole soundtrack in one, I think it was about an 18 hour sitting. Wow. I just started working as soon as the phone call was over and just carried on making things. I made hundreds of pieces actually. Well, not hundreds, probably 60 or so. Um, some of them very empty and simple, some of them bigger. Um, and I just sent the whole lot and said, take your pick. <laughs> wow. And, and I hadn't seen anything at all at that point. When you saw the finished product with your music wedded to it, did it work in the way that you had thought it would work? Yeah, I was really happy with that. I, th I thought, um, first of all, because I didn't locate the music in the film, I, I left that to director. Um, I thought the choices were really intelligent. He made some choices that I wouldn't have made probably I, I wouldn't have put this piece on that part of the film but there were some strange sort of salt and sweet combinations yeah. there that worked very well and they sort of in some ways um in doing that film i st funnily enough started to get a better appreciation of bacon as well i started to understand a bit better what he was doing in fact, the film, yeah, I would say my my his approval rating went up about fifty percent. <laughs> Brian, the album ends with um, um, an ending ascent, which is taken from 
for all mankind. But this is a piece of music which people, when they hear it, they might think, oh, I've heard it there, I've heard it there, because it's a piece of music that has been reused in so many different places. you have any sense of why that piece of music has lent itself to so many different, I mean, you know, uh, live events? Mm -hmm. And what is it about that piece of music that's striking a chord for people? It has a... It has a strange internal logic, which is interesting. Um, well, there are quite a few things. It has a beautiful sound. The sound is very, very big, and it's almost familiar because it isn't voices, but it sounds a little bit like voices. Um, but it's not quite—it's not quite familiar enough to fall right into that category. But the the logic of the changes within it is strange and that's because actually it started out the other way around i was working on a piece it wasn't working something about it wasn't very interesting and i turned the tape over and started working on the same piece in reverse now i could do that because none of the sounds had sharp attacks to them yeah. they soft sounds um turning it backwards what had been quite sort of familiar chord changes suddenly had a completely different and very unintuitive logic to them so so i think that's part of it that you sense that the thing uses a lot of almost familiar ideas like the chords are quite un, uh, quite normal really but they aren't normal when you turn them backwards. We don't normally put them together in that way. Um, so that was, a, that was a gift, really, turning a, turning a bad piece of music backwards and making it into a good piece. Um, and I think there's something very... It's this combination that I like a lot, the combination between aspirational, the wonder of the world, and melancholy somehow the feeling that uh, either you can't access it all or it's disappearing as you look at it those those kinds of feelings are interesting i think where you get both the the bitter and the sweet at the same time and i think i think that piece has a has a lot of that i mean one of the uses was in the olympics when when the um there was a sort of piece that was a memorial to the victims of the bombings, the tube bombings in London, 7-7. And that piece of music was used there. And I mean, it wasn't constructed for anything at all like that, but it, it worked very well because it has, there's strangely enough, both sadness and grandeur in it. Um, and unexpectedness somehow. It, it, it doesn't go where you expect it to. It doesn't resolve in the normal way. Brian, that's probably a, a, a very good note to end on. Uh, congratulations on the album. I have to say, listening to it as a, as a whole album, it's very coherent, which is very surprising when you consider the scattershot nature of how the stuff has been brought together. It actually, it works as a coherent piece. So congratulations on that. Um, I look forward to playing some of it on my film music show. Also, it's a real pleasure after all these years to, uh, to speak to you. I'm a huge fan and, uh, and thank you very much for my doctorate. Um, <laughs> I, I'm very grateful. <laughs> That's so, so nice. Thank you, Mark. It's nice to meet you as well. Thank you. 
Thanks so much for listening to this Kermit on Film podcast and thanks to Brian Eno. His new album, as I said before, is Film Music 1976 to 2020. If you enjoyed this podcast, then remember to tell your friends, subscribe. Why not check out our Patreon page where there's loads and loads of extras. Stay safe. Keep watching the skies. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.,